Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Julia Stitter, your host, and today we'll be talking to Lena Wietenkamp about her new book Europa Erzählt, Verortet, Erinnert, or in English, Europe Narrated, Contextualized and Remembered, which deals with German literature and its construction and interpretation of Europe. Within this frame, important issues are, for example, the significance of spaces, borders, and multilingualism. Ms. Wetenkamp, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, the pleasure is mine, and I'm really looking forward to the interview because Europe is such an important topic, especially nowadays. Okay, so, um, Ms. Wetenkamp, I uh, wonder if you could um, start by just telling us a bit about yourself and so on. So I turn it over to you. Yes, of course. Thank you. I currently hold a postdoc position at the German department of the Johannes Gutenberg University of Mainz. After my undergraduate and master studies in German literature, cultural anthropology, journalism and communication studies, I finished my doctoral studies in German literature just last year in February with a dissertation on the discourse about Europe and contemporary German language literature, which is the book we are talking about today. But let me maybe say a few more words about my background. Growing up in a binational family with a Swedish mother and a German father, I can say that I was always interested in other countries, languages and cultures, and for example, lived and worked a year abroad in Brazil before starting my undergraduate studies. This interest in other cultural backgrounds continued until today, of course, and thanks to a scholarship, I was able to spend parts of my studies in Lisbon and perform an internship at the Goethe Institute in New York before even graduating. These experiences, on the one hand, certainly did shape my view on science, which in my opinion benefits a lot from different cultural approaches. I treat the area of German studies, not from a strict national, but rather from an intercultural and comparative perspective. Still interested in other academic and cultural backgrounds, I really like conducting research in international environments and already performed several research stays at European universities. For example, I was visiting scientists at the University of Coimbra in Portugal in 2014 and at the University of Valencia in Spain in 2015. And furthermore, I was Erasmus guest lecturer at the University of Sassari in Italy. I think you can already guess that, on the other hand, this background explains already the interest in Europe as a topic of my book. There is no specific moment or problem which I can define as a, as, as a kind of starting point for this interest, but I'd rather say that maybe this topic emerged kind of naturally from my personal and academic background. Uh, so when thinking about Europe, uh, to me it seems nonetheless quite difficult to say what Europe exactly is and how to define it. You know, I mean, there are different approaches I could think of, for example, a geographical one. Um, so is there something like the one solution to this question? 
Um, or how do you address this problem within your book? Yeah, this question on how to define Europe is indeed very complex and complicated for various reasons. And the collective search for a shared or unifying European narrative is, in my opinion, still ongoing. And let me state this right at the beginning. I did not find the one solution or the one narrative either. So if you have hope to get this one solution today, maybe you're talking to the wrong person. But uh, no, no, <laughs> we can see what I can offer. So if you look, for example, at this question from a geographical approach and speak of the continent Europe, there will always be uncertainties where and how to draw the borders, especially the eastern one, which separates Europe from Asia. The efforts to determine this border reveal, in my opinion, no actual fact, but rather kind of wish for Europe as a geographically or naturally unified space. Of course, you can look at this question also from a political or socio-economical point of view and equate Europe with the European Union. However, this approach relies on a concept that has only developed for the last decades and, of course, The discourse on Europe dates back way further. In my book, I did not limit myself to one of these definitions, which, in my opinion, will always be arbitrary. I looked at Europe as a discourse, a discourse that is visible in literary text. My primary proposition when starting with the research was that literary texts are able to reflect the whole complexity of the concept of Europe. Literature, in my opinion, can act in a kind of seismographic way and explore as well as define the current state. Therefore, literature can offer new insights into the question on how to define Europe. However, even when you look at statements from authors or answer to this question in literary text, you will find that they will neither limit Europe to one single concept, but rather use very different ones. Um, you could maybe divide this variety of concepts in more open ones and more closed metaphors, For example, open metaphors depict Europe for, um, yeah, as a dream or a wish, something we hope for, but which is not yet realized. And there, on the other hand, kind of closed metaphors, um, I would count images and expressions like the Fortress Europe, which you will, of course, have heard in many recent debates. And these metaphors focus more on boundaries, restrictions, and exclusions. So... The use of these different concepts in literary texts show that Europe cannot be reduced to one single image. And following that observation, I might conclude that there cannot be only one European narrative either. Hmm, yeah, interesting. So you uh, just uh, started talking a bit about uh, the literary perspective. Um, so you basically uh, divide um, your book into two major parts. Um, while you are looking at essays and pamphlets in the first part, um, you turn to other forms of contemporary literature in the second part. So you just talked a bit about um, uh, literature, but um, why is this uh, second part necessary? Or um, can you maybe um, clarify it a bit more? Uh, what are the benefits of analyzing discourses about Europe, especially from a literary perspective? Yes, of course. Um, you're right. The aim of my research was a twofold one, um, and the, stru stru the structure is reflected in the division of my book. On the one hand, I wanted to get an inventory about the concepts of Europe stated by German-speaking authors of the last 30 years, or more exactly from 1980 until today. For this purpose, I analyzed essays by, for example, Robert Schneider, 
Jacques Derrida, Hans Magnus Enzensberger, Julia Kristeva, and Robert Menasse, just to name a few. And um, I'd say that quite profound research has already been done concerning essay texts from German-speaking authors from the Romantic period, period onwards, but an inventory about discourse about Europe in contemporary literature of the last decades was still missing. And my findings were that contemporary authors quite often don't see Europe as a unified and consistent cultural space. That's the concept we find, for example, in Novalis' text, The Christenheit oder Europa, written in, 19, in 1799, which is often described as one of the first essay texts on the topic of Europe. But contemporary authors, um, in contrast to that, rather stress the diversity, the heterogeneous and plural structure of it. But a closer look at these texts reveals that this focus on diversity can, on the other hand, foster the idea of the division of Europe into a core Europe and a peripheral rest. In texts from, for example, Georgia Agamben and even Jürgen Habermas and Jacques Derrida, you will find ideas based on this division, which, in my opinion, undermine rather than foster the idea of the European integration. There's, for example, uh, the idea of a union of southern European countries, a so-called Latin Empire that could act as a counterweight to the dominant role played by Germany in the European Union, stated in 2013 by Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben, and that has been the subject of much debate. But as my research shows, you will find quite similar ideas, of course, stated in a much subtler way in many other contemporary essay texts. But to come to the second part of your question, even as the discourse on Europe is most present in essay text, the second focus of my research was to find out if and in what way this discourse is equally present in other literary genres. So in the second part of my book, I chose text from two contemporary authors for an exemplary analysis from the very, I must say, very broad field of contemporary German language literature I narrowed my choice down to the two authors, Ilma Rakusa and Theresia Mora, whose work are mostly studied in an intercultural perspective or counted to a so-called intercultural literature or migration literature. And in my opinion, this analysis from a literary perspective can widen our view about the concept of Europe. The novels and stories from Ilma Rakusa and Theresia Mora address Europe both from a thematic and aesthetic approach. We might elaborate on this later on, but to answer your question, uh, in my opinion, the literary perspective paints a much more complex picture as political and economic discourse. Yeah, really interesting. So um, let's go on. Um, as well known, some EU skeptics uh, criticize the bureaucracy of the European Union, um, as well as the huge power of Brussels, you know, and um, have you found um, something similar in the essays you have analyzed or in the other literary texts? And um, if so, how do they develop their criticism? Yes, of course. This critic on the bureaucracy of the European Union is something we have heard a lot of. And of course, uh, this topic also emerged in essays dealing with the concept of Europe. There are two essays in particular, which are written almost at the same time in um, 2011 and 2012 which put the topic of criticism of the European Union central, but elaborate this critic in rather different ways. The first is a text called Sanft des Monster Brüssel, or Die Entmündigung Europas by Hans Magnus Enzensberger. I think the translation is Tender Monster Brussels, or the Disenfranchisement of Europe. 
This essay, which is composed of a mixture of argument and reportage, wants to inform on the customs and rules of the European institutions and their EU's political and economic roles. In Enzensberger's opinion, today's Europe is involved in a project without precedent because the EU institutions are performing, as a quote, the first non-violent form of post-democratic governance. That's why he invents the picture of the bureaucratic monster, which acts in a tender and almost not noticeable way. So we don't see it coming. We don't realize what, is going, what it is doing to our daily life. And to emphasize this image, Enzensberger lists a broad variety of actions in legislation, fiscal revenues, banking transactions, just to name a few, that are not longer of national but of European concern. The other essay I want to point out is written by Austrian author Robert Menasse and takes on a quite different approach. It is called Der Europäische Landbote, Die Wut der Bürger und die Entmündigung Europas. And it, it, it is, in my opinion, very interesting that in a translation, which is Enraged Citizens, European Peace and Democratic Deficits, the part of the title is left out, which links this text from Menasse with another important text from the literary tradition, from Georg Büchner's Der Hessische Landbote. This connection forms part of my analysis, and you know that literary scholars are always interested in the links and ties between texts, uh, but may not be the central scope here, so let me re return to your question. To Menasse. He, for research purposes, had lived for four months in the European capital to get an insight in the day-to-day -day reality of the EU's institution and the people who work there. His essay can be characterized as a personal appraisal of the European Union, but at the same time, he sheds light on its problems and asks for an urgently needed reform. He proposes a radical rethinking of Europe in its current form and posts a, quote, post-national Europe based on the subsidiary principle of the regions at the core of his text. Beginning his research as a, step, uh, as a skeptic, He's, it is interesting to note that his essay does not fuel the critique of the EU's officials. He astonishingly paints a rather positive picture and depicts them as true Europeans, that's a quote, polyglot, highly qualified and educated, unquote. In his most recent novel, Die Hauptstadt, which won the German Book Prize last year, that's a novel which unfortunately was published right after I handed in the manuscript of my book, so I could not really include it in my analysis. He continues with a literary examination of the EU. This novel is set in Brussels, and the main characters are EU officials, which led many critics to the statement that Menasse's text is in fact the first real EU novel. I hope I could make clear that this before-mentioned critic is central, even in literary text, but developed in very different perspectives. Yes, that seems uh, uh, less frightening than the image of the monster. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's turn to um, another often discussed aspect, um, European identity. Um, do European citizens uh, see themselves really as Europeans or rather only as Germans or members of some other nationality? And um, what have you found in your texts? Are there really core characteristics of a European identity? Yes, of course. This topic of European identity is addressed in the essays as well in the, as in the novels and stories of Ilma Racusa and Theresa Mora. 
And one of my findings is that literary narratives reveal or promote European identities that transgress national belonging in favor of transcultural or post-national concepts. I came to see that the concept of a homogeneous cultural identity is today simply outdated. Following this thought, the main characteristic of Europe and of course European identity can only be called heterogeneity or diversity, so concepts that stress fluidity and change. And you can trace back this heterogeneity even to the beginnings of European culture, a culture which derived from very different elements such as Greek and Roman antiquity, Jewish and Christian religion, amongst others. My aim was to verify these diverse elements of the European culture in the literary text. And that characters in both Rakusa's and Mora's novels deal with the question of belonging, identity, and otherness. The text of both authors can be seen as part of a transnational literature that, that emphasizes the global or transnational and not national perspectives. For example, Rakusa's more autobiographical texts, such as Mea Mea, published in 2009, engage with topics such as identity, origin, and the role of language in the process of forming one's own identity. The texts show that contemporary biographies are often not limited to a singular country, but rather establish their own heimat, you know, it's a very difficult term to translate, like their own home in a post-national space. I found parallel structures in Mora's novels, which pose the question to what extent concepts such as family, nation, or language can still count as valid parameters for an identity. The characters of her texts identify themselves neither with the places of their origin, nor with family histories. For example, the character of two of her novels, Darius Kopp is his name, stated at one point, ich will nicht verwurzelt sein, sondern verbunden. You could maybe translate this as, I'd rather be connected or related than rooted. In my opinion, this example shows a modest of a fluid identity, which is shaped by own choice, not by concepts of heritage, and reflects the contemporary state of art, where the boundaries between and within national cultures are becoming more fluid. And of course, uh, remembering the Holocaust is um, also um, an, an integral part of German identity, um, yeah, um, but how is the Holocaust remembered not only um, in Germany, but how um, uh, is it represented in Europe as a whole? And um, how does it shape European identity? Yeah, that's a very important question because the importance of remembrance of the Holocaust, not only in German, but in European history, is reflected in many literature texts, of course. I'm thinking, for example, again, about the above-mentioned uh, Menasse's novel, the Hauptstadt, where the story is set in Brussels and evolves around the question on how to renew the boring image of the European Commission. The idea of a big so-called jubilee project emerges, and one of the characters suggests putting the Holocaust memory at the center of this project by proclaiming Auschwitz as the birthplace of the European Commission. But in Menasse's text, this jubilee project fails due to different views on this subject of the various European nations. For example, the Polish officials proclaim Auschwitz as a German problem. The Germans, on the other hand, point out that the focus on Auschwitz would exclude other religions, for example, the Islam that is by now a part of Germany, and so on. You see, this 
highly praised novel shows, in, I think, in a rather amusing way, that coming to terms with the past needs to consider very different situations. And this is reflected in recent positions in memory studies, for example, from Klaus Legevi or Aleida Asman, who see the European memory as divided. The different nations are divided by different memories of different pasts, causing a so-called memorial divide. Because Western European memory centers on Holocaust memory, while in Eastern European nations, the Gulag memory is central. And Legavi states an existing asymmetry in the recognition of these paths and an ongoing competition and hierarchy between these memories. So you could maybe formulate the following task for you. There's the need to develop a pan-European historical awareness which will enable European citizens from all parts of the continent to deal better with a common future. In other words, Europe needs to find a way to create a state of unity while at the same time recognizing the cultural and religious difference and the different pasts. As I try to show in my book, literature plays a crucial part in this process of integration and completion of a united European memory. Because literature can offer insights into various pasts and personal histories. So, as I already mentioned, I analyze literary works with a transcultural focus. The novels and stories by Rakusa and Mora don't only refer to Western European past, but take into account various memories in a wider scope. In dealing with different memory cultures, they don't establish a hierarchy of suffering, that's a term used by Rothberg, between the different memories, but rather show that contemporary memories are constructed in transnational processes. Yeah, I see it's um, still to be developed, but literature plays an important role there. Uh, okay, um, so um, let's turn to another aspect. Um, um, so in Cold War times, um, there was, of course, a huge divide between uh, Eastern Europe and Western Europe as well. Uh, so um, when analyzing your texts, have you found that this has recently changed and that Eastern Europe and Western Europe are closer to each other now? Yeah, this huge divide between Eastern and Western Europe you mentioned, this dichotomy between East and West can be found in discourses about Europe since the Middle Ages, resolving in ongoing stereotyping, for example. But after the fall of the Iron Curtain and the collapse of communist regimes, the divide between Eastern and Western Europe had to be overcome. This also affected all cultural produ productions and as such, of course, also literature. Authors from, Eastern authors from Eastern Europe and former Yugoslavia in particular, who migrated to Germany and other German language nations such as Switzerland and Austria, have since opened up German language culture towards more intercultural and transnational perspectives leading scholars to speak of a so-called Eastern turn in contemporary literature. This emerging field in recent contemporary German language literature is widely visible and, in my opinion, shapes and transforms cultural identity. In texts from these authors, they map a transnational space where the division in an Eastern and the Western part of Europe becomes more and more pointless. If you look at the concept of Europe in these texts, you will find that they don't operate with the image of the root of European culture, the image of a culture that can be reduced to a single core. But again, it is the concept of diversity, which is central. The text, you can say, maybe create a pan-European space beyond narratives of national belonging. 
analyzing these texts, I came to see that the characteristic of Europe can be singled out more exactly by the concept of the contemporaneous non-contemporaneity, it's a term introduced by Ernst Bloch, which illustrates that in contemporary Europe, this continuities between past and present emerge. So, for example, in Ilma Hakusa's narratives, they describe journeys and visits to the many homes of her childhood. And in the description of these places, she links times, places, and spaces in a kind of associative mode and creates in this process of narration and memory so-called imaginative geographies or subjective cartographies where the question of East and West is no longer valid. So to answer your question, yes, I would assume that these texts show that at least in literature, Eastern and Western Europe are closer to each other now. So uh, let's turn a bit back to uh, literature. And um, so as you're looking at Europe from a literary perspective, um, I would also be curious of whether you have found some stylistic features Uh, that often occur in texts about Europe? And uh, is there something like European poetics um, with special characteristics? Yes, in my book, I established the term of a European poetic. Um, I use this term for texts such as Moras and Bakusets, which do not only treat the question of Europe thematically, but use certain stylistic features to support this, this discourse. This question on the narrative procedures and stylistic features was very central for my research. And let me just elaborate on two of these, the palimpsest and the list. Umberto Oeco, who really wrote a wonderful book about lists, shows that lists and enumerations can be found in many European texts, even in Homer's Ilias, which is sometimes seen as kind of a founding text of European literature on the whole. One of my findings was that many contemporary texts about Europe operate equally with modes of lists and enumerations. Now, you may wonder what is so special in this structure, that it can be seen as the ideal narrative technique when talking about Europe. And at the first look, a list is merely a framework that holds separate and disparate items together. Or more precisely, following a definition of Robert Belknap, says, a list is a formally organized block of information that is composed of a set of members. So it's a very strict definition. But as you look closer at this concept, the integration of a list in a literary text has different functions. They can, for example, account, they can remind, they can memorialize or simply order. And Belkner points out that lists are structures which always invite us to reflect, to wonder, for example, why. Why did the author choose this um, form at exactly this um, point of the text. So it's always a, a structure that made us curious. And a list put words in a paratactic structure, not in a hierarchical one. In this paratactic structure, every element of the list has the same value. This is quite an opposite image to concepts of centrum and periphery, which are often used to describe the current state of Europe. The conclusion I drew is that the integration of lists and texts about Europe promotes the concepts of equal partnership. Especially in Rakusa's text, the integration of lists reveal an image of Europe that is composed of equal nations, regions, and citizens, and not shaped by a core Europe. Let me turn to the second prominent feature I found in the text, um, to the palimpsest. In the metaphor of the palimpsest, the already mentioned notion of the contemporaneous non-contemporaneity becomes visible. Similar to the ancient palimpsest, 
which con constitutes from a surface that is repeatedly wiped off and used as an area for new writing, the landscapes of Europe can be viewed equally as places where the process of reinscription of new histories and memories continue to take place. The text describes places where the past and present is linked, and by Rakusa, for example, the narrator stumbles in time warps, where subjective time merges with historic, and past, present, and future in a way coexist. This narrative technique offers a concept of Europe as a place where history is not completed, but rather unfinished. I think it could be very interesting to compare these observations I found in the text to texts from other periods, genres, or even other national literature to verify if you will find the same features and techniques for the description of Europe. But I must say, this needs to be the topic of another book. Um, when you think about the works that needs to be done that you just mentioned, um, could you imagine could you imagine that you um, do this other book and um, compare... Um, European poetic also in other languages? Maybe, yeah, I could. I could always imagine many things to be done. But in, in my experience, especially Europe, is a topic that will always need most research. So, of course, in a way, I will keep this focus, but maybe not uh, really in a second book. But, um, for example, at the moment, I'm working now on a paper <clears throat> on the myth of the Habsburg Empire and how this myth is reactivated in contemporary literature. But let me say, on the other hand, after finishing this book, I have now the liberty to return to my other research interests, which conclude an analysis in the field of intermedial and transmedial artifacts, with a special interest in representations of violence in literature and film. And here I work mainly in trauma and post-memory studies. So it is a similar topic, but <laughs> in a rather different way. And this field of research is conducted at the moment mostly in a binational research project with the University of Coimbra called The Presence of Trauma, Post-Memory and Violence, which aims at addressing the so-called zones of silence and memory to take a statement about the validity of the contemporary concept of trauma. Our goal is there to examine the history of violence within German and Portuguese culture in a comparative approach based on examples from literature and film and to determine its relevance with the, the global construct of European modernism. So, as you see, even if this project has a very different topic, I still keep the European focus. Hmm, I see. So, um, Ms. Wittenkamp, uh, thank you for your time. Um, it's been uh, fascinating talking with you, and uh, I highly recommend your book uh, here. And thank you for being with us. Yeah, thank you for the interesting talk.